Welcome to BioChat, a podcast by AppClinical Technology. My name is Ken Lung, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only AppClinical's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming Dr. Lei Liu. He is an MD-PhD and an assistant professor at Harvard University, specializing in Alzheimer's disease research. How are you doing, Dr. Liu? I'm great. Uh, thank you for the introduction. It's wonderful that you had the time to join us today. I really appreciate your time and your expertise in this because, you know, I've done a lot of driving Alzheimer's awareness. We did, you know, the longest day. We do the awareness months. But honestly, I don't know too much about it. So it'll be wonderful if you can tell us a little bit more about your research. But before we do that, let's talk about why you decided to become a scientist in the first place. What was your impetus to become, you know, an MD and then a PhD or both at the same time? Actually, start from my uh, medical school. The two intriguing part of human biology is neuro, like neuroscience and uh, immunology. Because like neuroscience is a weird thing to study, whereas we're using our brain like a cognitive function to study a cognitive function of a self. And immunology is more about recognizing self and non-self stuff. So these two parts give me a lot of interesting time um, to think about it. But unfortunately, like as a uh, medical professionals, uh, there's uh, so little you can do as a neurologist. So a lot of things is really uncharted, can be diagnosis, but uh, you don't have that much way to intervene, such as neurodegenerative disease. Actually, that is driving force of myself to want to do something. Also, I did a, my medical school in China. After I graduated, I want to see what the world looks like. So then I travel around and uh, moved to Japan and just decide to do a PhD. And uh, when, when you're young, you are not sure what you want to do with your life. It will take some time, right? But I think that is mostly uh, why it's driving me to the science. It's uh, more about like medical trainings and you you want to do something without any hope or any solutions you want to find some solution we can now dive into what it is that you actually do at harvard in terms of alzheimer's for me my understanding is that there are amyloid plaques in the brain uh it could be tau it could be beta amyloid that are just building up and eventually causing neurons to die or be at least become non-functional and so that's the extent of my knowledge maybe you can explain the pathology of alzheimer's and what is the extent to which we can help patients at this time and what are we driving towards so actually, if you think about my current lab, so I have a translational neurology lab. A lot of time we talk about translational medicine. So what does translational medicine do? I want to say uh, it's a three part. Is one is you have to observe the nature of the disease, or we call it pathogenesis. Of course, we cannot easily tell uh, from patient because uh, a lot of patients in our clinic already have the symptom onset. It's not in their earliest form of the disease, but we try to do this uh, careful observations. So from that point, we have our behavior neurologists. We have all the imaging biomarkers like MRI, uh, PET scan, and at the same time, we collect the biofluid from the patient, like plasma, cerebral spinal fluid, and CSF, and we analyze the, uh, and eventually we, we also have brain donations to study the, the post-mortem brains. So everything altogether, 
is uh, to understand the disease from non-hypothetical way. Like we we don't have any hypothesis. Like what we just respect the disease as the form within this uh, uh, like disease population, which is for our patients. And then the second is uh, try to uh, do the data analysis from imaging biomarker, fluid biomarkers, and as a, also we collect patient peripheral uh, blood uh, monocytes and RFC or descent to compile them into a way we can logically understand. So it's a kind of comprehension. And then we make some predictions. We predict the trajectory of the disease development and go back to see the patient because a lot of patients, we see them, we have follow-up, and we also have the longitudinal like cohort. So for example, we have a cohort named Harvard Aging Brain Study. This is uh, almost uh, 15 years. We see uh, actually healthy, uh, normal human aging process. So with these things, it's, a, it's a literally uh, like uh, from the observation, comprehension, prediction, and then we go back to the uh, observation. So then this is a part of how to understand the disease. And the second part is how we do the intervention. So from what we learn from the patient, that we also test a lot of methods or therapeutic developments on the patient samples and see what would be the best way. For example, uh, uh, passive immunotherapy, this is one of the uh, important uh, projects in my lab. We evaluate all the currently available like immunotherapy on the market, testing their mechanism of actions and uh, find how they work and, and what can be improved. And the second will be the small molecule because uh, as a treatment itself, I believe we have to go down to a small molecule to, to give the patients the easy way to treat the disease or even like prevent the disease. So actually this is how the transnational like lab work. Okay, you have to work with the patient and uh, no matter your, uh, you get the data, you analyze the data, you come back. And at the same time, we also have our own like uh, phase three clinical trials. So that's a larger scale of operation. It's a, a we have a A4, and so now there's A3, pre, a secondary prevention trials uh, happening in our institute, uh, led by uh, Dr. Risa Sperling. So these are another part of the translation. It's a testing if your understanding, your comprehension can lead to an intervention of the of this disease. We cover almost all the perspective from the get idea from the patient and test the idea. It's very self-feedback process because uh, there's always some very much clinical reality in front of us to for us to understand and to comprehend and uh, to correct our perspective if the perspective was wrong. Regarding the, the pathogenesis of RSM disease, RSM disease is complicated disease and uh, it have a lot of a spectrum of symptoms and also it have a huge amount of heterogeneity uh, even for the family type of RSM disease. Fundamentally, uh, we just say there is this protein called a amyloid precursor protein or this is a precursor of this amyloid beta or beta amyloid depending on the terminology does not matter now. It's a, a self-templating protein accumulation in the brain causing uh, a series of events. But this series of events is so, take such a long time. 
sometimes take up to 25 to 30 years. Sometime in the uh, early onset case, it may take like uh, 10 to 15 years. Also, there is family time, they take even shorter time. The youngest patient identified with a known uh, mutation from our severance is 19 years old uh, with a pre-cell mutation. So the family form of the disease gave us a lot of uh, insights and how the disease behaves. And uh, so we have a uh, major three gene have uh, highly penetrable uh, mutations in the preselling one, preselling two, and uh, amyloprocusoproving APP. So the identification of the preselling from the name is called a presenel. So it's a uh, means premature like premature dementia. So like because presenel uh, dementia was a terminology back in the, I think, uh, in the 70s, 80s, people say that a lot. So the presenolin was a second gene, actually. Amyloid precursor protein was the APP, was the first mutation identified. If we go back to the amyloid precursor protein, which is the source of the amyloid produced, it is uh, undergoing a zero uh, cleavage uh, by two proteas. One protease is on the cut from the exodomen of this type 1 transmembrane protein, the other cut in the transmembrane. So transmembrane is lipid-rich environment. So uh, hydrolysis happens in the double lipid, like uh, uh, transmembrane is something uh, relatively new to be discovered, actually. Uh, I forgot details of which paper. I, it, I think it was uh, 30 years ago, there was a, a microbrome, and so they, they got the Nobel Prize for the lipid metabolism. Uh, Goldstein, yes, Goldstein at Macworld. They found the, the first intracellular enzyme, I think it's a S2P. So it's a C, a S1P and S2P. They cleave this lipid sensor, SREPP. So that was the first discovery of uh, this type of enzyme. So then later we found that actually A beta was produced in this manner by uh, intramembrane proteas. So then the production of uh, A beta was very much a target for a long time, actually, even up to today. So this cleavage is uh, very interesting. It's not one cut. It have a zero cleavage. Actually, the reason or the rationale of the cleavage is very clear. If you have a type 1 transmembrane protein, which we know they have only one transmembrane, like a pass, once you cut this transmembrane protein in the in intramembrane site, it will generate a very unstable state because like you release a lot of energy and uh, you have incomplete protein like a part in your uh, membrane. So which is a quite a toxic, sounds quite toxic to me. So then the enzyme will cut this peptide several times until the double lipid layer can no more retain this protein. So it's just a shortened it enough. But the problem with this amyloid precursor protein is Normally, glycine is not that much in the transmembrane domain because uh, glycine is called a helical breaker. So I have a very high uh, helical penalty. So transmembrane domain normally is a very good helical structures. Once you have that, this enzyme and the substrate reaction is not optimal. So normally when we imagine no matter it's a protease or like what kind of protease, hydrolysis, like a cysteine proteas, aspartic proteas, serum proteas, they have the same thing as uh, you, once you get the enzyme and substrate and uh, uh, after they form the complex, you have a product. But this enzymatic reaction is uh, so under optimal 
I have a lot of uh, intermediate product. So this is a uh, normally when we when we see other substrate of uh, of this uh, pre-selling gamma securities, they cut very good. They cut uh, until the the end of the transmembrane dominant, or even close to that. But for the A beta, you leave uh, very long of the uh, transmembrane dominant, which is super hydrophobic. That is the reason why we have this A beta accumulation. So because like uh, once it's hydrophobic, when people are young, they have very good clearance like a system, they get very good, very robust protease enzyme uh, to degradate that. Once the aging kicking, the, the degradation is not as well as before. So we are producing a beta every day, every second, actually from almost every cell of our body. If you measure your plasma, there's literally a half nanogram per mil of a beta polymer. But there's so much a beta, we never get a problem until certain age. So there is a, of course, we have a natural evolutionary glitch of this uh, APP to generate, to have these more glycines. Actually, I have a paper on that, just about uh, the glycine's role. You change one glycine, you change uh, completely of the production uh, pipeline. And actually, I'm designing a gene therapy targeting this glycine. Then you don't have this uh, long half-life uh, protein accumulating uh, everywhere. But after the A-beta, if you say A-beta is a kind of um, inevitable, like uh, you cannot avoid it because of this is natural problem. This is a, a problem in our gene. But uh, the family limitations is uh, accelerate your natural imperfectness. So it's not perfect. We, we have uh, some little problem. But these are all the family limitation is accelerating that. That is why family form of Alzheimer's is just aggressive form of the sporadic Alzheimer. A lot of people believe, study these uh, very rare incidents of this family mutant case are not giving us any implication on the general population. But actually, it's not true. Because if we understand the fundamental levels of uh, how the disease yeah. propagates or start, you will see actually it's, it's just a more uh, aggressive form of general Alzheimer's disease. This gene is in our genome. It's produced ubiquitously. What actually is beta amyloid and even tau supposed to do? When I look at tau, it's a microtubule associated protein. So it tells me that it's involved in possibly the cell structure. And, you know, you need it to make sure that the cell is in a certain shape so that it can function properly. I'm not as sure about beta amyloid. The only thing I really know about it is the aggregate part which is at that, that point, you now have Alzheimer's. So maybe you could tell us what is beta amyloid generally designed to do before it just completely crashes and gums up the neuron? So amyloid is, like I said, it's the only very small part of the amyloid precursor protein, right? So the function is actually the precursor protein. It's just a byproduct. When we know a lot of, so for instance, uh, when we think about the type 1 transmembrane protein, we can call them intramembrane signalings. The intramembrane signalings, uh, after they shed the extracellular part, they can be, let's say, a growth factor, right? They can be a growth factor. They can be uh, any kind of ligand. And they also can be decoy, right? So they can do a lot of things. And uh, the intracellular part of this uh, protein, they can work as, uh, you know, transcription factors or they bind to something else as a secondary messenger, right? So then, unfortunately, we have this uh, byproduct. 
is in the middle and uh, it don't have any known biological functions. Actually, there's many, many software release similar things like a beta. The reason we know a beta is they have long half-life because of their innate problem of their sequence. So this is the only reason we see them. Because other things, they release instantly degraded by like insulin degradating enzyme or like a, a, a IDE or like a NEP or all, all sort of extracellular matrix enzyme can cut these things. So then you don't even see it. But a beta, we fortunately can detect it, but unfortunately they aggregate. And in addition to beta amyloid, what other biomarkers are we looking for? Or are you guys basically solely fascinated by beta amyloid and you're not looking at anything else right now? It might not be you. It might be just the general community, but there's got to be something more like other than the total amount of beta amyloid that you might get in the CSF or in the serum that you're using to screen these patients, right? Yeah, so like biomarker development is a completely different set of logic, uh, what you are studying biology. It's very difficult to design a rational biomarker because you have to understand the full pathology from the brain to the peripheral very clearly, and you get a biomarker. That's For me, this now, is a, I don't think we have any of these things. All the biomarkers is really empirical which is uh, you want to find something, some protein or like even a circular RNA or, or anything related with the disease progress. Biomarker is a marker. You mark the disease. In some case, it won't be pathology relevant. It might not drive the pathology or something like that. So actually everything's welcome. You can do a beta, you can do tau. The reason we do a beta and tau is we try to find some rational biomarkers because a beta and tau, you can understand their uh, aggregation in the brain, uh, their value in CSF, you want to do that. But actually there's something we don't understand is this central and peripheral dynamic because of the brain blood barrier. Uh, it's not like it's a small, you can get it out. It's highly selective. It's a select something to pass, something don't pass. And then how you predict the central nervous system from the peripheral. So I will say even up to now, we know there's a phosphorylated tau or a lot of different things like a GFAP. There's some people want to study the synaptic generations like synaptic proteins. But all of these up to now, we it's, it's really on the on the practical level. And uh, frankly speaking, for the biomarker as its a definition, if you get something work, it's uh, it works. Do we really care about the logic? Uh, no. So as long as you follow up uh, the disease progress, it will be, let's say, we, we must ask too much from the biomarker if they say we want uh, a rational biomarker. I think a lot of things we just uh, make a terminology and after that, and, uh, because we cannot study brain longitudinally. The difficulty of the Alzheimer's or any neurological disease is the brain is untouchable. You cannot uh, do a biopsy. And, uh, the only thing you can get is with imaging. And imaging also will in light of the specificity, like what we're doing the, the A-beta path and PAL path. So I think everything should be explored for, for the biomarker because uh, there's uh, no best one, there's only better ones. And another thing is the disease progress normally take uh, 20 years or even even longer. So then if you want to do prognosis, diagnosis, disease monitoring or the therapy uh, efficacy monitor, 
then you have to use different set of biomarkers instead of just one. There, there should not be just one biomarker, golden biomarkers. This is my like opinion. Uh, earlier, you had suggested that some some of what your direction is is looking for gene therapies. Now, based on the prolonged course of this disease, there are probably ways. Like, if you can catch Alzheimer's early, so that's part of the re reason for trying to find better prognostic markers is to make sure that we catch it as early as possible, and then you can try to manipulate the course of the disease to slow it down until such time as a better therapy comes around, or just to prolong and make the patient's life as enriched as possible given their pre disease progression. But we're we're probably a long way away from using like CRISPR or even that. You, you guys heard about the uh, Broad discovery, right? The Nature paper where they found a eukaryotic version of, of CRISPR called Fanzor, I think. And so using gene therapy is probably uh, years away. But there are probably ways that you can both slow down the, the spread of the disease and also treat people that have like either moderate or aggressive forms and just try to prolong their lives. Uh, like uh, if we think about uh, any type of chronic disease treatment, we give uh, insulin to type 2 diabetes it's, uh, like because we have a biomarker. Right? If we don't have the biomarker, we don't even know the problem. Um, hypertension, same, uh, everything like uh, you have to have reliable biomarker to intervene a disease before it's, it go to a different stage. For the, for the gene therapy, I will say it's still very early these days. The major problem is still delivery. We don't have very good delivery and all the antisense oligos or SRA, they have to uh, do the intracycle injections. And it's very invasive. Very expensive too. I mean, you can get you like you can easily spend half a million dollars a year for this kind of chronic disease and also like slow progression patient. I don't think it's a, a feasible way to approach that. I'm more thinking about uh, you know family case or the fast progression patient, or you think about the risk like APOE4 homozygous uh, patient or something like that, like uh, with a much higher, like for example, 100 fold of the risk, you want to do something like that. But other than that, the gene therapy is not there at all because like uh, now every, everybody is uh, really excited. The field is hot. The gene and cell therapy this is a bit, very big thing now, but it's very far from the reality. And I would say, Alzheimer's, especially the general type of Alzheimer's, like sporadic case, personally, I won't justify that disease for the uh, gene therapies. And uh, if uh, for like uh, ARS, uh, I think that that kind of disease, like you, you, you want to try anything on it, right? So it have such a urgency you want to do. For Alzheimer's, if we can modify the delivery route, you know, and also, for example, RNA editing, so uh, like uh, there is a ADAR enzyme, like you can do the G2A substitution. Like if you can have some subtarget, you can do that. That's still doable because the uh, ADAR is endogenous. You don't need to deliver a big enzyme like CRISPR. So CRISPR is too complicated for your gene therapy. Maybe for cell therapy, maybe. I'm not sure what kind of cell like you can produce with CAR. Uh, we already have very successful CAR-T, right? So you don't need a CRISPR to make a CAR-T. And uh, now people are doing in vivo CAR-T. So 
I'm thinking that a lot of medicine is not, let's say the majority of the medicine nowadays is not a guide itself. It's more like bombing the field, right? So uh, because like you, sometimes you need a brutal force to do the job, okay, especially for, for the Alzheimer's. Uh, if you think about cancer, uh, you're adding something, you want to remove it, but uh, Alzheimer's is, don't have that issue. So you're not seeing a lot. Maybe you change uh, something a little bit, and as long as it's good, it's good enough. For the gene therapy, it's uh, not there yet, but uh, I tried uh, some primary editing a couple of years ago when it just uh, came up, but the, the efficiency is not really satisfying to me. So I'm seeking for other approaches, uh, more you know reversible instead of gene editing. I'm, I'm more interested in the RNAs. I forget the exact name of the drug that was going through FDA approval, and there's like some controversy around it, but there there are drugs that are designed to try to reduce the number of amyloid plaques and neurons to try to salvage the neurons before they become completely unfunctional. What is your take on those kinds of uh, approaches? Yeah, this is a, it's not controversy anymore. Uh, so the, when the controversy happened was when the Belgian announced their uh, like aducanumab. So because they have two trials, one trial seemed to be positive, one trial seemed to be negative. But the problem is more about their trial design. It's more about the harm their practice. It's now from the from the mechanism. So lecanumab from uh, Azi, uh, partner with Belgium as well, uh, works very well. I mean, like uh, they clear the plaque and uh, we clearly have the negative trials and the positive trials positive trials with Lacanumab, and now we have Donanumab showing their phase three data. At the same time, we have the negative trial, which is the Gantanarumab from Roche. Very nicely designed, but they get a negative response. And uh, we could see what's the efficacy, what's the targeting engagement. The better the targeting engagement, which is a term by plaque clearance, the better the cognitive function you will observe. Uh, at least now it's, a, it's a like 30% uh, a mild degree of uh, uh, of a reserve, like a reservation, uh, but uh, the patient was not treated long enough and we don't know how the trajectory will go. So this is a very legit approach uh, because like, uh, and also this is a, a fully proof of concept for the amyloid hypothesis because uh, everything is association and correlation until you can clinically reverse it, okay? So this will really prove the cognitivity of the amyloid to the Alzheimer's. You remove it, you slow it down of the disease progress. But uh, there are still a lot of challenges. One of the major challenges is side effects. They can clear the plaque on the blood vessels and they will cause hemorrhage. And uh, within the brain, they activate the immune response and to, uh, to cause another type of uh, uh, like edema. So everything's called aria. It's a, a, like a amyloid-related imaging abnormality. So these things are very concerning. So this is why they will be very much safeguarded by the clinical uh, program, like uh, once these drugs will be prescribed. However, we have to build better antibodies to have uh, much less of these uh, side effects or damage to like patients' blood vessels and uh, brain tissues. I think the it's uh, we're on the good track. There's a passive immunotherapy was uh, not believed to be successful since a long time. 
but now it looks like even the brain blood barrier only allowed 0.1% of the antibody pass through, it is working. So then it encouraged us to develop the better brain penetrable antibody. So for example, like focus on the receptor dependent transcendences or like the nanoparticle or like focus the ultrasound. There's like many ways to facilitate the antibody to enter the brain. I think once the passive immunotherapy for, for the central nervous system become a new norm, there will be more therapy came up, uh, not only for Alzheimer's, but for uh, neuro-oncology, right? So for neuro-oncology, for all sorts of uh, uh, like disease, which we believe that uh, we cannot do anything. You have the basically the best of both worlds. You are an MD and a PhD. Do you actually get to do clinics? Uh, do you get to talk and interview your patients directly? And uh, that gives you better insights into the Alzheimer's and how to direct your research? I'm not personally uh, doing that because uh, I didn't try to get the board here. As you know, like uh, the research can be very time taking and I just decide uh, I want to focus on research. But uh, actually our team is, uh, is made up by physician scientists. So we work every day together and also like we're analyzing the clinical data. We see uh, how the patient progress. We are seeing uh, everything more on the statistical level and also like analyzing individual patients samples without even knowing the patient themselves. So I think that is another way to understand how the like, because that is the actual part of the claim. Uh, like, you interview the patient, now you get all the behavioral neurologists, you know, like, work. So you see how their cognitive function is and uh, what's their history. So that's the limitation of neurology. That's everything you can learn. It's from your interview, from your, you, you give some questionnaires, yes. get several uh, cognitive scores to be done. Uh, actually, that is very much like automatic. <laughs> I will say chat GPT can easily do that. But uh, the, the other part of the clinical work I want to say is uh, how to analyze their uh, patient samples. I would consider that as a part of the future clinical practice because like uh, now we have some standardized measurements, but there is uh, still a lot of measures you are developing for the patient. So from that point of view, I think it definitely helped me to understand disease better because uh, uh, you have to work on the patient either in front of them, questionnaire to know their cognitive capability, or you analyzing their monocyte, you analyzing their uh, plasma samples, CSF samples. But uh, still, no matter what, the difficulty of population-based study, no matter you are doing biopsy, such as a plasma, CSF, or you're doing a postmortem, there is a huge amount of noise. The personal variability is very high. So how to get a conclusion or how to get a speculation from analysis. So that is the, a very difficult and tough job, which requires you have to understand the disease as much as possible and design your cohort wisely and choose uh, the patient wisely. So sometimes it takes a really long time to accumulate a very, very good cohort to fit your research purpose. You had actually sent me a really cool preprint. This is about the PSIN, which is related to the gamma secretase. Perhaps you'd like to plug your own uh, awesome new research. 
So this preprint actually is uh, one of the most important work up, uh, in my career up to now. This is the fundamental level evidence of how does amyloid work. So we take a, this paper we have 162 PS1 mutations. So all these mutations naturally happen in the patient. So that's the intriguing part of pre-selling. Pre-selling have 467 residue, but now up to now we have more than 360 mutations. It could be the most mutated because we, we don't know in like a, like a beyond our exploration of the human genome. We don't know that, but that could be the most mutant bearing gene uh, in the human genome. So one of the reasons is this gene don't have any, let's say, selection pressure. You you have a mutation, you still can live up to uh, the age, you can have all uh, kids, you can have offspring, so you still can pass the gene on. This is why like you can have it so many like mutations. So but uh, analyzing these mutations are like let's say most of the mutation will cause family high RSM disease with one hundred percent penetration. So when we analyze these mutations, we see their their enzymatic function can predict the cognitive decline, they can predict that the biomarker, uh, like a, a measurement of uh, a large cohort of this family case, which is with all the patients from this uh, dominantly inherited RSM disease network based in Washu and St. Louis. So from that, we almost get the, what is the hardware of the disease or what's the ground zero. Uh, all these enzymatic assays was measured from HEC 293 cells. So it's completely irrelevant to the neurons even, and to the, uh, not even to the brains. But from this, uh, we just analyze how the enzyme work. So then the enzyme performance could predict the cognitive decline. And we can separate uh, groups of patients from this cohort. Some of patients will have early onset, early, much early onset, but their trajectory is, uh, is uh, slow. And we can find some of them are very late onset, but their trajectory is a sharp. So it, it easily can separate patients because that is very important for us to do secondary prevention trial. Because when you do a secondary prevention trial, the most important things is you need to know the disease trajectory. But once you have so much heterogeneity, you don't know that. You don't know the disease trajectory personally. But uh, with this uh, prediction, we have a formula. We can predict this family, these uh, carrying this mutation, what's their real age of onset? Uh, because like uh, we also correlated very well with the age of onset reporting, but the age of onset reporting normally is reported by family. No one will know exactly of which day, which month, and uh, this patient start to have the cognitive. Uh, decline, or what is the first sign of the cognitive decline? We literally bring a biochemical component into understanding the disease fundamentally. So this is how it changed the world. Because uh, two years, roughly two years ago, I published a neuron paper with uh, one of my collaborators. Uh, we talk about IPS neurons differentiated from the sporadic case. And we measure the, the enzymatic function uh, reflecting by the A-beta product, uh, like production. We can see the cognitive decline is correlating with the A-beta production, which is literally the enzyme functions. From these uh, two levels, we know the sporadic case work this way. Now the family case, of course, they work this way. I kind of knowing this evidence for not evidence, I know this uh, will work for a long time. 
but until uh, we get such a large scale of patient data, and at the same time, we, we did uh, carry out all the biochem uh, biochemical analysis. When the data blind, uh, I'm blind to me, I get very excited because uh, this is a so solid evidence of the amyloid hypothesis. And now we have a way to predict. Just based on everything that you've told me, now we have a better predictive algorithm. We have a better predictive model, but we're still miles away from completely curing this disease. So now you have an earlier indicator through your family history. We know that you are very likely to develop some form of Alzheimer's. We can then intervene earlier to make your life a little easier until such time as a treatment comes along. So where can we go from here to try to address Alzheimer's, both treatment uh, management and basically an eventual cure? So uh, if you think about any successful uh, like a therapeutic program, there's a, I kind of summarize three golden rules. First, you need to have, this disease have to have very clear clinical symptoms. Second, it must have a cheap, reliable uh, biomarker. And the third, you have to have a safe therapy. No matter it's very efficient or it's not that uh, like much efficient. Unfortunately, Alzheimer's disease does not fit this. It don't have a clear clinical symptoms. It don't have a good biomarker up to now, and it don't have a safe uh, like uh, uh, therapy. I think like we can work on this. Is the first point we we cannot work on it because it it, it won't be Alzheimer's disease anymore. The second point and third point we can work on that. The next will be what is personalized. Like uh, as we learn from these. Uh, uh, the family patients um, now is uh, spending a lot of effort on uh, how to generate personalized risk score and uh, to predict the cognitive decline and the risk trajectory. So if you get a risk trajectory, you say in five years, how many chance you get it, you get cognitive decline in 7.5 years or in 10 years. But uh, you have, we have to collect so many different layers of evidence like A-beta, gamma secretors, tau, everything to make a rough assessment. And then the third is making the current approved therapy safer. So now current approved drug for the, this idea of the passive immunotherapy, we improve the safety profile. We improve the, the drug's pharmacological stability because now it's not stable at all. The half-life is roughly six to seven days. It's a horrible antibody. So then we have to improve that. We have to improve the safety profile and the PKPD profile to make a stable and a safe drug. Even it has the same efficacy, right? But a patient will be not hesitate to uh, take it in a long term. You don't cause damage. So then I think with these two points, we won't cure this disease. I mean, this is a, yeah. it's a consequence associated with aging, right? So, and uh, personally, I don't believe we can reverse aging because uh, it's uh, so many factors together. But uh, what I will say is uh, Alzheimer will become a manageable disease, like diabetes or like hypertension, something like that. And also like uh, when we think about the epidemiology of the Alzheimer's disease, we always say we have 25% when 65 after 65 years old, we have the 50 after 80 years old. Actually, everything about this disease management, it's about uh, life quality. So if you can allow 
old people, let's say 85 years old, 95, like uh, people, humans should not expect to live more than like 120, right? So it's a, I, I would say that's a very, very, very challenging task to do. But if we think about people still live the same lifespan, but uh, they live this lifespan happily with a uh, uh, full capacity of their co uh, cognitive functions, I think that's the point, right? So we always have a saying, we want grandpa, grandma to pass away in the ballroom when they're dancing instead of dying in the nursery house, right? So it's it's always a about life quality. Because if we look at the Alzheimer's disease, uh, let's say economic burden now, uh, the therapy is not that much. Even we, even the lecanemab get approved because I don't, I don't believe it. There will be many patients can can use this drug because of safety profile. We have to cherry pick the patient to to treat them. But even everyone get it. It's not that much money considering all the necessary home, all the care cost, and also there is more than that. Like if one family member, elderly family member, was a, has Alzheimer's, then all his or her younger family will have to spend a significant amount of time which normally they should contribute to to economic effort or to build something, right? So then they have to relocate that energy into the care. So everything is a, uh, I would consider this disease is not only a devastating uh, disease for the patient themselves, also family, it's a, uh, for family, for uh, economical burden. So uh, I will believe as long as we, we can manage it, we don't, even have this problem after. I'm very happy that you were able to give us your time and just teach me a lot about Alzheimer's. And I really thank you for your time and your efforts. And I really wish you the best in your research because it's not only self-serving because, you know, you'll get tenure and everything, but also you're going to help many, many millions of people and their families. So thank you again for your time, Dr. Liu. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's really a pleasure, you know, doing science is one thing. Um, like I said, the standard of uh, my lab is really standing on what is a real life, uh, real world impacts. Uh, like, uh, you know, doing doing academic research is not that much fun. Uh, if you if you lost the, the reality contact, you just sit there writing ground. I would not like to consider that kind of life if there is no a realistic you know, a consequence. What is uh, your research will lead to? What's what's the impact of your research will lead to? So uh, thanks to this uh, environment, actually, like we have the capability to to move forward this uh, translational research. Actually, we had a, a neurology professor. He he hosted uh, a lot of these meetings called the batch, uh, like bad to bench to bad, like a BBB uh, talk, because like he will. Uh, bring uh, like a, a, a real world patient, a patient of himself. If you interview the patient in front of all the, all the audience, and then there is a PhD trained background, uh, a PhD background researcher will explain what is this disease. So in the beginning, it's about guess. It's so from your uh, clinical practice, you have a guess on what kind of diagnosis. And then once you show all the laboratory tasks and uh, what's the pathways impacted, I think that is a, how the neurology should be moved forward in the future. Because like uh, before, when I was in China, like people ask a question, like I was, uh, uh, I'm, I'm focusing on the clinical practice. I'm a neurologist. Why should I uh, do research or why should I spend my time on research? 
I saw like the, the issue with neurology, especially neurology, is there are so many disease. It's not only without a cure, it's a result of disease involving by therapy, even without uh, like a, a symptom, let's say controlling like therapies, right? You want to yeah. uh, like just focus on the symptoms. So that is actually the driving force of the neurology like physicians, they should move like a step forward, say, I want to do some research because uh, that is the only way we can move this uh, uh, treatment further. Otherwise, uh, they stay on the paper. The, you have a really great outlook on life. And again, I really wish you the best and thank you uh, very much for your time. This has been a conversation with Dr. Lei Lu of Harvard University. And we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of AppClonal Technology hosted and edited by myself, Ken Lung. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on appclonal.com, where you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or any comments, or to inquire about Appclonal's quality products and services, please send a message to service at appclonal.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.